Hello, everyone. I am Virginia Prodan, the host of Courageous Leadership with Virginia Prodan, which airs every single Wednesday and Saturday at 10 o'clock Central Time. You can hear uh, our podcast on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, ADP Podcast Network, and of course, you can watch it on YouTube channel um, for all of you. Who don't know me, I am an author and speaker, an international human rights attorney. You can read my book, Saving My Assassin. You, you can find it at our uh, website, virginiapradanbooks.com. And we love, we love to train you to be a strong and courageous leaders. We also love to invite strong and courageous leaders that will teach us and train us in their specific area, how they got to be leaders, how they got to accomplish what they accomplish. And today we have a very, very special leader. He is Steve Green, the president of um, uh, Hobby Lobby. He is a speaker. He's an author. He's a man of God who built not only a wonderful family, but he is building a, a wonderful legacy. Steve, thank you so very much for returning to our podcast. You bet. It's great to be here with you, Virginia. And I might say and put a plug in myself for your book, um, I read it. It is a great read, an incredible story, and uh, I encourage your listeners to pick pick one up because it it's a it's a great book. Thank you so much. For those that might know just a little bit about you or about your family, for me it was an honor and a privilege to be at uh, Hobby Lobby in Oklahoma to meet your parents, to meet your family, your uh, your wife and your children, to speak to uh, so in so many areas. Uh, and also, I had the privilege to receive a private tour of your company, so that was amazing. Would you tell us how you started? The uh, business started by my dad in uh, 1970. He started manufacturing mini frames. And then in 1972, he opened up a 600 square foot uh, space and called it Hobby Lobby, uh, put the manufacturing of the frames in the back half of the facility. And... Um, it was in 75, three years after that, that he quit his day job, which was working for another retailer called TGNY, and um, started uh, full-time to expand Hobby Lobby. I graduated high school, and I knew what I wanted to do, and so I started working in the business. We had, I believe, eight stores at that time, and uh, been uh, working in the business in different functions ever since then. and. Uh, Later this year, we'll be opening our 1,000th store. So we've had uh, a lot of success and growth. Uh, God is blessed. Yeah, it is wonderful. I remember from what you and your parents told me for a long period of time, your mother was working by your father's side without receiving any payment. So when, when, we, when Dad started in 1970, until 75, when he started working full-time, my mom was kind of running the store while he was doing his day job. And uh, so she worked with no pay and um, uh, really wouldn't be here were it not for mom being able to do that. 
So uh, we we uh, owe her a debt of gratitude. I think uh, it shows the passion um, and the obedience that somebody has when uh, uh, that person knows that is doing what God asked them to do. And uh, I believe many times people quit too fast. Yeah, and and most of the time, uh, any new venture is going to take a lot of energy and effort uh, on the front side. Um, A lot of hard work, a lot of late hours, and um, without a lot of um, compensation for a lot of hard work. And uh, that is what we saw uh, our parents do, uh, a lot of commitment, uh, a lot of Late nights, I remember uh, when dad was uh, working late at night trying to build fixtures and uh, painting to get uh, a store uh, ready. And uh, just it just takes a lot of energy and effort. And uh, uh, he's uh, they both have given a lot to make this uh, company what it is. How hard or easy was for you? to step and do the work in uh, with your dad and uh, following your dad big steps you know i it it was it was just a gradual process uh when we were my brother and i were 7 and 9 he's the older brother uh when they first started manufacturing mini frames they would bring home bags of the pieces and we got to glue the frames together and they paid us seven cents a frame. So that's how we got started when we were kids. As we got into high school, we started working at the store uh, during the summer and on weekends. And uh, that was the way we earned earned money. And uh, and why I knew when I graduated that that's what I wanted to do full time and why I decided not to go to college because I knew that uh, the opportunity was there for me to work in the business. So started in the business and uh, I was just traveling to stores, being a communication between the corporate office and the stores. And then uh, I would have some buying responsibilities. Uh, So I got involved in buying, was involved in operations. I oversaw several departments, uh, the IT department, accounting, uh, different functions. So I really got exposed to most aspects of the business and, um, But it was just one step at a time over the years. And as I said, my title has changed over the years. I I graduated high school, started working for my dad. My title has changed over the years. I still just work for dad because dad still comes in, very active in the business. And um, But uh, it's been an opportunity for me to just grow into the roles that I've had. Uh, And it's just been a a great opportunity and a pleasure uh, to to be able to work uh, with, with family. Um, I hear from you something that I believe is essential for young people now. Unfortunately, many of them, not all of them, but many of them have an entitlement attitude, have a belief that they know everything, that other people are too old, they cannot learn from them and everything. What I hear from you is you were placed to work in specific places and you felt like, you have to grow to go to others. How would you encourage uh, young people to get rid of that entitlement that cuts off the wings and the opportunity to learn? Yeah, I, I think it starts with understanding who who we really are. 
uh, and understanding that without God's blessings, we can't do anything. That um, I, I, you know, feel so blessed to have been uh, born into a family, uh, my parents' family, that have been very successful. I see they came from very uh, modest um, uh, upbringing. Neither of their families had much money, uh, but uh, God had a calling on my dad's life. He had a skill set and has blessed it. That doesn't mean that uh, he is going to bless my life in the same way he's done uh, my, my father's. And so I think we have to understand that we are blessed with the parents that we have. We have um, that, that whatever we have is a gift from God, that it is all his. And the more we understand that, that just because I have been blessed with the parents and the position that I have doesn't mean that I'm any more blessed or loved than somebody that doesn't have that. My dad's siblings, um, they all were going into pastoral ministry. None of them had the um, financial blessing that my father had, uh, but loved just as much and God used them just as much. Uh, and they were fulfilling the calling God had for them. And so, um, uh, but but when we understand that God owns it all, that it's His, um, uh, that helps us understand that we are without His blessings and without Him, uh, we're really nothing. Um, and um, that we're here as just a steward to serve whatever He has blessed us with. That it's so important what you said, and I hope that uh, the listeners and viewers will take to God. God owns everything because he already gave us a skill and talents in particular. You know, God never makes copies. He makes originals. And you are an original. Your father is an original. I'm an, an original. They are an original. And God put some specific skills. And when we use those specific skills to honor God, to bless God, to give it back to God, God is multiplying them and open, opens doors and does amazing things. So I hope instead of saying, I don't have this and I don't have that, I don't have a family like Steve or whatever other excuse uh, um, people have, they will look at the skills that God already put in their lives and they will use them for his glory and watch God, what he's going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, uh, again, I kind of compare with, with my dad and his siblings. He is one of six. And for some reason, God called him to a different path um, and blessed him financially. And I think as I, I think of my kids um, and my six children, what if their paths are, are going to be all different? God's calling on their lives are different. And it doesn't mean that it involves great financial success. It could be great spiritual success. And that is success. Um, and uh, so um, the, the challenge is to just know what God has called you to do and be content in fulfilling God's role for your life. Uh, because uh, it, it, we should, we, we are his, he has paid the price for our lives and um, we owe everything to him. And it, it, if we're Please just being obedient to the calling God's called us to, to be in, then uh, we will have contentment. 
that it's uh, that is so um, um, amazing because when you know that God sent you on that path with the skills and talents, when storm comes, you will remain faithful and you will walk in the storm with God and you will see the light. You will see the miracles, and not only you, that others will see the miracles in your life, in your business. Can you share with us one or two of those obstacles that you you encountered in your business? And because you knew that God sent you to this role, you accomplished amazing things in God's power? Well, there's two two particular family meetings that come to mind um, uh, when when you look at challenges and struggles. One was early on before uh, we had very many kids. Me, my brother, um, my sister doesn't have any right now. But um, as uh, early on in 1985, my dad had a family meeting where he told the family he didn't see how we would be able to survive. Uh, 1980. It was in the spring of 86 because of a loss in the business in 85. Um, he felt like that uh, there, there was no way we would make it. 1986 wound up being the second most profitable year we've ever had, but it was a very tough year because um, uh, it was most of the profits were made at the end of the year. And it, it was one where it, it was a, a lesson that dad would say God was really teaching him a lesson that this business is not ours. This is his business because were he not to have intervened and to have made 1986 the profitable year it was, we would not have survived. And um, so it was very real. It was a, it was a challenging time, uh, not knowing if we would survive and the lesson learned that it was God's. And it really informed a later meeting in 2012 when we were facing the situation where the government was telling our business that we had to provide in our health plan for all of our employees abortive products. And uh, that violated our own deeply held beliefs. We felt like that was taking life. Um, and so wound up having to sue the government that we loved. Um, and we didn't know in this case, uh, if we did not win, it could have cost our business as well. The best calculation we had at the time was the fine was going to be $1.2 million a day for not providing. You know, we had 99% of what was required, but you know, these four abortive products we did not want to provide. Um, and, uh, we, we wouldn't be able to sustain a fine of 1.2 million. But if in fact, this is not our business and it is God's business and God owns it, then we have to do it God's way and trust God for whatever he uh, you know, chooses to do with the business. And at that time, we really didn't know what the results would be. In our family discussion at this, this particular situation, there was a discussion of three different possible outcomes uh, if we were to draw the line in the sand and not provide. Daniel uh, gives us two of those. He was told, when he was taken into captivity, you have to eat the king's meat. It violated Jewish law. He said no, appealed to the jailer, and a compromise was made, and he didn't have to, so the problem can be averted. There was a later time in his life when he was told he can't pray to his God. 
and he did exactly that. He prayed to his God and wound up having to face the lion's den, and God showed up and delivered. So we knew that those were two options. God can The problem can be averted. God can show up and deliver miraculously. But we also know that sometimes God uses a different tool in the toolbox. Sometimes God does allow suffering. My brother made the movie called Into the Spear that tells about five missionaries in Ecuador that were speared to death by those that they were trying to bring the gospel to. And you can say, you know, they were out there giving of their lives, and yet God allowed their deaths to happen. Um, What we see as uh, the rest of the story is that there were uh, a wife and a sister of two of those that were killed that went in and lived with those uh, people for one of them for 40 years before she passed away. And many of them came to Christ. Uh, But as a result of this contact, all that to say, there are times when suffering does happen. Uh, And sometimes it's God allowed, but God uses those times for his own good. We are beneficiaries of Christ's own suffering uh, when he paid the price that we might have life. So whether the problem was going to be averted, delivered, or suffered when we made the decision that we have to do it God's way, uh, we didn't know what the outcome was going to be. But we just felt a peace and a confidence that if this is God's business, we've got to do it God's way. And we are we were convinced God would not want us to be taking life. So we uh, had to file suit against, uh, uh, as I said, the government we love. And as many know, our case went to the Supreme Court and we won the case at the Supreme Court and are just really grateful for the founders and for the um, foundational uh, principles that they built this nation on. Biblical foundation that really served our purpose well in in this particular case. And hopefully even those that didn't agree with our position would understand that it is a win for all Americans because religious freedom was upheld. And uh, we were grateful for that. I hope, I really hope that, uh, because I can't say anything more than what you said, because it's it's so powerful. Uh, But the the last thing that you said, I hope sticks with uh, our audience. When we stand up for Christ, not only that those three possibilities will be presented in our lives or in the lives of others, but the result will touch us and many other lives. It's not only for us, it's for the glory of God and for many people, not only in the United States, who knows, for people all over the world. So with the persecution coming to America, how do you prepare your business? And there is prudent things that you you can do. Uh, And when this law was passed, there were agencies that are out defending religious freedom that saw the problem that was coming. And they wanted to defend us because they knew that we were a good candidate. And part of that is because of the stand that we had already taken. For example, our closing on Sundays, it sends a message that our faith is real to us. 
there are legitimate uh, uh, policies that could be put in place that uh, helps protect a business when there may be laws that come down the path that would cause them to have to violate their religious uh, 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 beliefs. And so uh, being prudent and understanding and having uh, and living according to your belief and incorporating that in the business is prudent. And um, Alliance Defending Freedom is one that we have used to advise us and help us to make sure that we have uh, you know, good policies in place that will protect us in case something like that comes uh, down the pike again. That is so true, Alliance Defender of Freedom. It's a wonderful organization, and I'm honored to be one of the Alliance attorney with Alliance Defender of Freedom. And um, I, many times I, I say it as a joke, but it's a reality. I was a troublemaker in Romania. I continue to be a troublemaker here. But it's true. It really is remaining under God's wings, on God's path, no matter the circumstances around us. Uh, is the best choice that we can make for us and for our um, our business, for our family, and for our legacy. Because the way we live our lives in Christ is the way we will live our legacy. It's amazing that many times in America we we exercise with do we are very good on that, but. We never think that we will go to exercise our muscles only the first week of the month, you know. But when it comes to exercising our spiritual muscles, sometimes we neglect and we think that, oh, the church will do that, and you know. But it's part of our daily activities, our daily relationship with Christ that will define um you know, our, our lives and will impact our family, our employees, uh, and, and our all, all the people around. So, um, yeah, I think there are times when uh, we are called to be uh, uh, a disruptor. Um, and not that we were out seeking uh, to be a disruptor, but when the challenge came to us, um, you know, we, we filed suit. And there's times that uh, we need to stand up for truth. Um, I think of uh, Jesus when he was in the temple overturning tables. He was a bit of a disruptor at that point um, because things weren't do- being done as was designed. And so uh, when, when we see that uh, wrong is uh, happening, then uh, it, there's times for us to stand up and uh, be a voice. And uh, God puts us in places at times to, to do that very thing. There is, there is um, uh, something that we always have. He is a great example in uh, Christ. And reading the Bible, it helps us to know what kind of example he set up for us. And also, we have to look at example in the Bible like Daniel and Joseph. Joseph has had done nothing. He stood up for Christ, for Christ's principles. And he was in jail for nine years. But if you read correctly in the Bible, you will see that he was faithful to God in the Bible, in the, in the 
jail that people noticed his work ethics and elevated him to a high rank. He was elevated because of his work and faithfulness to God long before he was elevated number two in Egypt. So we all have to learn a lot of lots of things from not or from Christ first, but also from so many people in the Bible. I want to ask you to share with us few things that are dear to you about Museum of the Bible. You heard me? What Museum of the Bible represents to you? And what the the Museum of the Bible has done for people around you and for uh, people in America? Can you hear me? I don't know what what is going on. Can you hear me? Steve, I was asking you what you think about the Museum of the Bible. I, I don't think that, that you, you heard me, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to close the... Thank you so very much, everyone, for being at our podcast, A Courageous Leadership with Virginia Pradhan, which airs every Wednesday and Saturday at 10 o'clock Central Time on Spotify podcast. Um, um, <clears throat> are you back? I am. Okay. Sorry. Okay. Oh, what I what what my question was to you is to share with uh, our viewers a few things about Museum of the Bible. So um, we were uh, introduced to a group of guys who wanted to put a Bible museum in Dallas and wanted to know if we would help them out. And uh, I just said, well, if the right deal came along, we would consider it. Uh, nothing developed, and then we started acquiring some artifacts that uh, for for their museum project, because we love the idea. It wasn't a foreign concept. My brother opened a Christian bookstore and had mentioned a couple of times throughout the years, it'd be neat to put in a Bible museum. So um, we, we started developing, growing a collection. And as the collection grew, the family felt a sense of responsibility that maybe we needed to be sure the dream became a reality. We had a growing collection, and we had the resources to get a museum started, and the guys that wanted the Bible Museum in Dallas had neither. So it kind of became our project. I was uh, uh, fortunate to be the point person for the family on the project, and uh, so me and my wife launched a uh, uh, the, the effort uh, several years ago, and it was an exciting journey. We also thought, well, what if God doesn't want it in Dallas? 
so we look, I looked at the top 10 cities and the other two cities that stood out to me were New York City and Washington, D.C. So we were looking in all three cities when a survey that we were doing said that D.C. is where it would be best attended of those three. So we focused on D.C. when the facility that we are in today became available. Uh, we acquired it in um, 2015, started renovation in 2015. I think we acquired it in 2012, started renovation in 2015, and we opened the museum in uh, November of 2017. And uh, it's been an exciting journey. We were connecting with biblical scholars from around the world. We looked at leading design firms to help us build it. Uh, it is quite uh, an exciting project that we were a part of, and um, the uh, museum is in D.C. We had the competition was the Smithsonian's, which is you know the largest uh, museums in the country visitor-wise, and so uh, the bar was set high, and that's why we engaged leading firms to help us build out a museum that would be at the level and at the standard of what's in D.C., and uh, we invite visitors to come out and uh, see what kind of a job we did in uh, uh, telling the Bible story. We have an incredible book with an incredible story to tell. And so we had to tell it in an engaging way. And uh, I think that our design firms did a great job of being able to do that. That is uh, so true. I, I can testify to that. I have been to the Museum of the Bible. I spoke there several times. I am, I'm told, and sometimes I forget, I'm sorry, but I'm told many times that on the third floor, uh, that is uh, as long as uh, any time the museum is open. Um, that is a place where you have testimony of people, uh, people including who suffer from persecution. And my testimony is there, and I'm very honored to have that. But from from the time that you opened to now, I watch it being so much extended and so much improved. And you have now areas you can you cannot visit the museum in one day. Right. There is no way. No, no way. Now you have a place where kids can explore. Kids can go and do different things. Am I right, uh, Steve, that now you have um, people can go and sleep overnight and uh, have their um, uh, places where they can, they can watch it? You can tell more about that. Yeah, there are different programs that we have developed and are developing. And one of those has been where it's kind of an overnight kids camp uh, that uh, uh, will, will be able, an opportunity to really have fun in the museum while it's closed. Um, and, you know, there is there is a children's area that uh, is fun for kids. There's a Disney-esque ride in the museum where we fly people through D.C. You're on a platform that leans forward and it moves as you're watching a screen, flying to places in D.C., 13 different places where scriptures engraved on monuments. Uh, again, a great uh, fun uh, place for kids. The visitor favorite uh, from our surveys has been our Hebrew walkthrough. It is a uh, uh, try. The effort is to try to tell the Hebrew portion of the Bible, the Old Testament, in a, about a thirty-minute walkthrough. Uh, you'll sit and get an introduction. You kind of walk through and sit and watch another video and uh, go through three or four different spots where you're sitting, but you're walking through the rest of it. And it really is just trying to tell the story of the Bible. 
because there's three primary ways that we're looking at the Bible. And on that floor, it's just what is the story of the Bible? Where do you start with a person that doesn't know any of the Bible story? And the narrative floor is to try to tell what is that story? The other two main ways we look at it, and the main the other two main floors are the history floor and the impact floor. And those two floors are really focused on, is the Bible true and is it good? Those are two ways that the Bible is primarily attacked. And so the history floor, the question is, is the book true? And what we do is just show the biblical evidence from the archaeological evidence, some of the oldest information that we have, going into the manuscript evidence that kind of starts with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then shows the history of the effort to try to finalize the translation of the Bible into every language of the world. So that's kind of the history of the Bible, the evidences for the Bible. We don't say the Bible is true. We just let the vi- present the evidence and let the visitor decide. The impact floor is looking at how has this book impacted our world. It's impacted every area of life. And so we just have vignettes that show how it's impacted science or education or uh, languages, art, literature, music. In all of these areas, the Bible has had an impact. Um, and when followed as designed, it has been good for mankind in every area of life. Yes, there are those that have used the Bible for their own selfish ill intent. We had a temporary exhibit where we had a Bible on loan that was a Bible printed for slaves, and it had Exodus taken out of it because they didn't want slaves seeing how God valued coming out of slavery. So, yes, man has used it and twisted it for their own selfish purposes, but when we've followed it as God intended, it has been good for mankind in every area of life, and that's what we want to show on the impact floor. So those are the main three ways We have temporary exhibits where we can go and do a deeper dive into any area because we literally scratch the surface of the Bible story because there's no building that can contain the book story. And as you said, if you spend a day in there, you'll scratch the surface of a museum that scratches the surface of the Bible story. Uh, We have an incredible story to tell. I say that we have we have a dis, we have an unfair advantage on any other museum. We have the best material of any museum. We have a book that has changed the world, and uh, we want to shout that uh, story from the rooftop. That is so true. Not only that, the book it's the Bible who changed the the life of many people, but because of the Bible, because of your passion and the excellent work that you all have done at the Museum of the Bible. You have now people from Rome, people from Israel, who will allow you to bring to um, America, to your Museum of the Bible, um, elements for a period of time that were never left Rome or Israel. That's right. We have Uh, the Israel Antiquity Authority, which is the entity that would own anything that is dug up archaeologically is owned by the Israel Antiquity Authority. They have their own space in the museum as well as the Vatican. So they obviously have deep libraries and uh, uh, artifacts that uh, share the Bible story or evidences for the Bible story. So 
uh, we felt like early on it'd be important to invite them to be a part of the museum to tell the book story. Uh, this is not a uh, about a faith tradition or a denomination or a church. It's about a book. And there are multiple faith traditions, the Jewish, the Catholic, Protestant, the Eastern Orthodox. You know, these these faith traditions all have one thing in common, and that is a book. And so what we want to do is celebrate that book and uh, felt like that'd be important to invite the Israel Antiquity Authority and Vatican to be a part of telling that story. And so we're excited that they have some long-term exhibits within the museum. I hope that our audience and our viewers understand that everything goes back like a, a, a ball around, like a blessings. Look at the way God used you when you use the skills and talents that he gave you, not only for the business, but also for the ministry. He blessed in, in, and you are a blessing to others. The Bible comes alive. So I hope those people that are asking themselves, I don't have, I don't know how to start and everything, have the answers. What would you say as a final point to them, to encourage them to use what they have to start or to continue and watch God? Yeah, I, I think of uh, on our impact floor, we uh, there, there's Life Magazine in the year 2000 came out with a publication, the 100 most important events of a millennium. So for the last thousand years, what were the most important events? And for reasons, I think the impactful is a better term. Uh, and in the top 10 were things like germ theory was discovered. Hitler comes to power. Uh, Columbus discovering America. But number one on their list was Gutenberg prints the Bible. It wasn't the Gutenberg press. It was Gutenberg prints the Bible. And the point that they're making for that thousand years, if that was the most impactful event, that has changed our world. It has had an impact on people's lives all over the world. And so whether you know it or not, this book has had an impact on a person's life. And what my encouragement is, is to get to know that book better. Because if it is what it claims to be, which I believe it is, it is God's guidebook for life. It teaches us how we should live, what his design and his purpose was. And as we follow the purpose as God has designed for our lives it is what gives us the greatest fulfillment in life. And so for those people that might be uh, feeling like they're lost or don't know, and there's times when we may not know exactly what God's up to um, uh, in our lives. But uh, if somebody doesn't even know the God of the Bible, um, obviously getting to know this book better that introduces us to our creator God is uh, a venture that everybody ought to uh, pursue in their life. And so, um, and, and if you do know God, know him even better. And, and the way to know him better is in his word. So uh, that's what our purpose is at the Museum of the Bible. And it's somewhat a life purpose is to invite all people to engage with the Bible. Whether you like it or not, get to know it and then make your own decisions because it can be a powerful impact on a person's life. That is so true. It emphasized two things in what you said. There are two things in life that every person should know who they are 
And we know we are sinners in need of a Savior and who God is, our Savior, our Redeemer, our hiding place in, in case of trouble, and our best friend who can show you the way. He said he will put his hands on our back and said, this is a way, walk in it. And that's the way we walk in our business, in our lives, step by step. And I hope they take this to their heart. Steve, thank you so very much for coming back to our podcast, for sharing those gold treasures for others that might follow Christ and might do what God has for them to, to do it. We value you, your walk with God, your family, your business, your ministry, because it's an encouragement to all of us. Thank you, Virginia. It's been my pleasure and uh, enjoyed our time. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for coming back to our podcast, Courageous Leadership with Virginia Pradhan, every Wednesday and Saturday at 10 o'clock Central Time on Spotify, Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Edify Podcast Network. And of course, you can watch it on YouTube channel. For those of you who don't know uh, me or don't know very much about me as your host, um, I would love for you to read my memoir, Saving My Assassin. You can find it on our website, virginiaprodanbooks.com slash product slash book. And you can be encouraged that God can change you you as he changed me and God can change through you a country and he can perform miracles. So give God a chance. God bless you. And until next time, be blessed and see you later. Thank you so much, Steve, again. Thank you. Bye-bye.